Good morning, everyone. We're going to do it a little differently today. Um, we're going to read together uh, as one family, one body in Christ. So if you take a look at the screen, the, the words should be up on the screen as we're reading together. Uh, there they go. Good, good. Okay, let's start on three. One, two, three. As we open our Bibles, we also open our hearts that these words of truth may fall upon the very fabric of our lives. May these ancient scriptures come alive within us to inspire, to heal, to cleanse, to teach, to restore, and to guide our hearts and minds. Lord, come weave your words of life in us. May we all feel safe with each other, safe to think and safe to question, safe to ask for help, and safe to share our lives with you, our loving Heavenly Father. Amen. 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 You may be seated. We are stepping into a brand new series on the book and in the book of Jonah. Jonah takes about eight minutes to read out loud. Jonah is a short book. Jonah is a fascinating book. And before we jump in, we need to know a little bit of background. The prophet Nahum says this about this uh, region of the world that Jonah, the Jonah story emerges from. He says, woe to the bloody city, all full of lives, lies and booty, no end to the plunder. He gives this portrait of this nation, Assyria's violent militarism of which Israel was on the receiving end of. It is dramatic, it is poignant, but it's not really that exaggerated from what we know from history. We read this in Nahum, the crack of whip, the rumble of wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. Similarly, another prophet named Zephaniah, I know, happy Mother's Day, this is a great way to start. Zephaniah longed for the day in which God would destroy Assyria and make Nineveh, which is a city in Assyria, a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. We read, this is the exultant city that dwelt secure and said to herself, I am and there is none else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. And then we read through over the course of 2 Kings 15 and 18. We read, then the king of Assyria invaded the land. He came and deported the people. The king of Assyria marched against Samaria and laid siege to it. If you're taking notes, just maybe write the word like invaded and then the word deported and then the word laid siege, right? Invading is what happens when you raise an army and then march it into another country and take it over using force and power and violence. Deporting is what happens when you capture the inhabitants of that country that you've invaded and then forcibly remove them from their homes, from their jobs, from their town, from their land. Laying siege, man, that's what happens when you surround a city with your army. And in doing that, you sever the city from its water and food sources so that many people are starving and suffering and dying that eventually they give up and surrender. The Assyrians... To wrap that all up with a bow, are mean. They are nasty. 
They were a violent people. They were oppressive. In the literature, the Hebrew literature in the Old Testament, we don't get a whole lot of redemption stories around Assyria or the city of Nineveh therein. They made life miserable for the Israelites. If you're brand new to the Bible, the first half of the Bible is like directly uh, rooted in the story of these Hebrew people who were meant to be a blessing to the world. God begins faithfully with the people. God is a God of love, and love requires choice. And so God begins by enacting his redemption plan, his plan of renewing all things. He begins specifically with a people that culminates with the Messiah of Jesus, and we are living on the other side of that. Now, it's during this history, this part of the history of these Hebrew people, in full view of their enemy, they emerged the story about a man named Jonah. And according to this particular story, Jonah is told by God to go on a mission. So if you would turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Again, for those of you new to the scriptures, this sounds harsh, but this is actually a show of mercy. Go and tell them that they are out of bounds, that they are not where they're supposed to be, not doing what they're supposed to be. God wants to send a prophet to warn them. If you've ever been warned of something and then realize that warning was true and it kept you from some sort of impending doom, you know that a warning is actually a deep and sacrificial act of love. God wants Jonah to go to Assyria, his worst enemy, the people who have made life a living hell for him and his family, and his family, family, and generations upon generations. You can hear Jonah saying, you really want me to go to the center of the beast and do something good for them? You have got to be kidding. I don't know if you remember three years ago, four years. No, it's longer than that, I guess now. 20, I'm going to forget, 14 or 17, um, where we... uh, I remember the headlines, specifically on CNN, where we learned that the Taliban had blown up um, the tomb of Jonah. There's this historical site, right? We don't know a whole lot. In fact, much of Jonah points to an allegorical story. We'll get into that next week. But the, the apparent tomb of Jonah was destroyed in Mosul, which is actually right down the road from ancient Nineveh. And I remember thinking, like, the odd, twisted poetry of that, where this was probably one of the last places on earth anybody in their right mind would want to go, and imagining God sending one of you into the heart of one of, like, the, the most notorious terrorist groups and warning them and pleading with them to stop what they're doing. It was there that they blew up the tomb of Jonah. Jonah, understandably, wants nothing to do 
with this mission. And so he heads to the nearest port, jumps on a ship, sails in the opposite direction. Now, I, I know that many of you, especially those of you um, who have read the story recently, like our impulse when we read a story like this, if you know where the story is going, I'll give you the quick overview. Jonah, again, wants, is disobedient to God, doesn't want to go, doesn't want to go, is reluctant through the whole book even unto the end. Now, I want to invite you to see the story, though, in a particular way. Instead of doing the thing that we often do with characters like Jonah, where we assume that we would never, ever willfully disobey the God of the universe, let's pause and try to empathize with our brother, who isn't, isn't really having doubts about God. We're going to find out as we read through this book. Jonah has no doubts about God, about God's existence, no doubts about God's power. He just doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. Can we empathize with a man who's having righteous anger toward a people that had wronged his people in the worst possible ways? I was thinking about Tim. Some of you know Tim, our executive pastor, who has been in Poland with a small team over this past week. If you haven't been following along with our Instagram stories, please go and do that. We've saved them all on the front page. Just people that he's been able to go to, refugees. There's 3.5 million refugees from Ukraine. And I, I'm imagining, as far as I know, no one in Tim's immediate family or extended family has lost their life yet. But I was imagining that having happened to Tim and Tim getting the call, you need to go and march into Putin's office and invite him to repent and invite him to realize the grace and mercy of God. Could we have a moment where we might empathize with Tim and go, mm, I can understand why Tim might not want to do that. And this is on a level far, far more extreme even than what we're seeing in Ukraine. So could we, as we enter the story and enter this series over the next four weeks, empathize a bit with Jonah? How do you imagine the first audiences would have reacted to this story when Jonah won't go to Nineveh? Would they have focused on his disobedience? That's a good sermon to preach. I've heard it preached. It's good. Makes sense. Look at how Jonah's being disobedient. But my sense is that they may, may have focused more on the ridiculous call that God put on them, and they probably would have related. One writer says, I think you would have probably gotten into the boat and ran too. Verse 3. You guys tracking with me? I'm so excited about this series. I just want to say that. Just so excited. Verse 3. But Jonah... Ran away. Will you circle the words ran away? If you're following along. From the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed to Tarshish to flee. Circle the word flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. These are pagans, not the good guys, the outsiders to the person telling the story. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Like, we got to figure this out. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down, and he fell into a deep sleep. Will you say sleep? The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Will you say sleep? Get up. And call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us 
that he will not perish. They're like, our pagan gods are not showing up right now. Maybe you're God. You got something. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. This is all they know. They're like, whose fault is this? Again, before we go like, oh, ancient history when they cast lots to kind of blame. I mean, if you, um, if someone robbed a bank and then as they're fleeing the bank, ran out into the road and got hit by a car, what would your impulse be? Whose fault would that be? Whose fault would it be? Bank robber. Good. And what, what might your instinct be? Like, they got what they, might what you say in your subconscious, or maybe not your subconscious, might you say they got what they, yeah. They're like, man, we have never had a storm. We've never had anything like this. Whose fault is this? Before we immediately go, what primitive history? There's these natural human impulses that pop up in this story. They're like, whose fault is this? It's got to be the new guy. They cast lots, lots fell on him. So they asked him, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? They're like interrogating him because they want this, like the ship to not break apart. And they had this sense like, dude, none of our prayers are working. You're the oddball out. What's the deal? Let us know what's going on. He answered, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? And then we read in parentheticals that they knew that he was running away. We say running away. They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them. They already had a sense of something up with this dude. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Jonah responds, pick me up, throw me into the sea, he replied. I don't know how he said it, but that's just how I hear him saying it. It's like, just pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this storm has come upon you. Instead, this dude just was like, I'll, I'll do it. Just let me go. It's me. It's my fault. Your impulse was right. I'll, you throw me in. And they instead... Do something else. The men did their best to row back the land, back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, to Jonah's Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. They're actually trying to still save the guy who's caused the storm, who's running from his God, who they barely, if at all, believe in. Such a cool story, right? So weird, so bizarre. The pagan sailors are like, we wanna, we'd love to try to keep you alive, Jonah. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, I've done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah. They're like, Lord, we're doing our best here. Forgive us if we're doing the wrong thing. They took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord who, uh, the Lord, and made vows to him. <laughs> Such a great story. You would assume that a story told by the Israelites about Assyrians would stick to a pretty straightforward category of good and bad, of right and wrong, of righteous and evil. But the Israelite in the story, 
Jonah, the one who supposedly, supposedly follows God, runs in the opposite direction from God. The word that is used here is flee. Jonah flees and then ends up on a boat full of pagan sailors, and they pray. And while they're praying for the storm to stop, Jonah doesn't pray at all. Jonah sleeps. The pagan heathen sailors ask all sorts of questions trying to figure out why the storm is happening, only to discover that Jonah's the problem. Jonah knew all along. A few observations. Jonah doesn't stop believing in God. He just stops following him. Jonah doesn't stop believing in God. He just stops following him. This is a story of willful disobedience. I remember um, the first house that I, I remember, my mom had made me green beans for lunch. I didn't like green beans. Mom said I had to eat green beans. Didn't want to eat green beans. Tale as old as time. So my mom goes into the bathroom or goes into the back room somewhere, I don't remember. I get up, grab most of the green beans, knowing that she'd be suspicious if all the green beans were suddenly gone. Put them in the trash, put a plate over top of the, uh, the green beans, sat back down, and then finished to eat, like, went, went after the last three. My mom walks out, looks down at the green beans, says nothing, walks directly to the trash can, grabs the plate, lifts up the plate, looks at me, shakes her head. I try to explain. I got nothing. Spanking ensued or something. <laughs> Those moments of willful disobedience. Mom said, and I went ahead. Are there any places of willful disobedience right now? I'm not talking about blind spots. I'm talking about things you know God's invited you to and you're just resistant. In the boat, Jonah knew the whole time why it was happening. He didn't fail to trust God's existence. He didn't fail to trust God's power. Jonah is not surprised by the storm. He knows that, quote, this is his fault doesn't stop believing in God. We can still hold firm to general Christian precepts and general ideas of what it is to, tr to like say we trust a loving God, but there is often a gap between what we cognitively ascend to, what we say we believe, and how we live our days. Second observation, Jonah, Jonah can't hide. Tarshish is this idea basically of the other end of the world. It's the opposite direction of where God's will is found, right? We read, he, quote, ran away from God. Even I had you repeat the words like sleep over and over or running away because this is just like a, a classic, classic imagery that we see throughout the scriptures. The God of the universe running after him, disrupting his life with a storm, using outsiders, pagan sailors to save him from being thrown overboard, saving him from the consequences he deserves. We'll read in a minute about the whole crazy whale bit, right? He, he gets thrown overboard and then gets rescued by God in the most insane way. Such a classic image of God as we go through the scriptures. We can run from God. 
We just can't hide from him. We can run from God. We just can't hide from him. My two-and-a-half-year-old loves to play the hide-from-mommy-and-daddy game. And so she runs. As soon as I come in the house, she'll hear the door open, and she'll dart, usually for a spot right behind the couch, by the record player, and she, like, ducks herself in the corner, and she just hides, and she'll stay there. Or better yet, my wife sent me a picture where she had actually gone to hide but fell asleep hiding. She, had a, she was on our bed and had a pillow directly on top of her. I should have grabbed that picture. It was not adorable at all. And the game that we often play with Keller is like, where's Keller? Right? If you have kids, you know this. Moms, you know this. We know exactly where Keller is. And she pretends to hide, but she just cannot. Not so great at two and a half at the hiding game. She can get a little far from us. She can run. Sometimes there'll be a split second where we're like, Keller? Oh. We can run from God. We just... We really can't hide from him. We see this again and again and again. Psalm 139, 7 to 12 reminds us, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, the psalmist just starts to riff. Even there, your, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. This is not, the psalmist is not giving us some abstract doctrine of divine um, like omnipresence but an odd confession that God just cannot be escaped. Can you think of a time you were running from God? Can you think of a time that you were running from what you knew was right? Can you think of a time you were running from your calling? Can you look back, some of us who are starting to hit that midlife and you're going, I didn't expect to be here and God planted some seeds in my 20s and I'm being disobedient to them now. I'm walking out like a dead average middle like American dream and no part of my life is sacrificial. I'm still living like in a way that like I knew I was invited to not live. There's things that got put on my heart that I did not step into. Or there's unfaithfulness that God's been reminding of me over and over again. Have you ever felt the haunting sense that you can run but you can't hide? I like the word haunt. I actually think it's really appropriate. And the church mothers and fathers over the centuries have used this phrase haunt. It's like this sense. Like I I can't get away. It's a really, really, really difficult place to be when God's just like, hey, I'm not going to impose my will on you. If you don't want me to fix your situation, I'm not going to. I'm not, I'm not. I've given all that I can be given. Would you, would you turn and would you see me? We can run, but we can't hide. Now, I want to fast forward for a minute to the end of the story. In the next three chapters, Jonah has a change of heart and he sees this massive miraculous change of heart in the Ninevites right before his eyes. But he gets so upset by it that he wants to die. He says to God, after realizing his worst enemy, we'll get deeper into this in the weeks to come, but realizing that his worst enemy may actually listen and may actually obey, he says this, one of my all-time favorite passages, I knew 
that you are a gracious and compassionate God. I knew it. I knew you were going to do this, God. I knew you were. It goes on, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew it. When we're on the receiving end of that grace, man, it feels so good. But when we've got those people in our life who we have such issue with, who are doing like the wrong thing in every department, this isn't just like we agree to disagree and need to learn in unity. Like there's a very clear story here where these people are doing things that are objectively horrible. And Jonah is like, are you serious, God? Almost like this is one of the reasons I did not want to go. I knew that you were, and you expect to hear like some nasty images about God, and instead it's your gracious. I knew you were going to be compassionate. I knew you were going to abound in love. I knew you weren't going to send calamity. God, they deserve calamity. That person deserves everything that's coming to them. And then he adds, now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. It's such a great story. <laughs> this is a story in which none of the characters do what you'd expect them to do. None of them. Which raises some questions for me. Why did the story survive? Why did the story survive? Why did people find this story important and worth telling? What does it tell us about how they understood who they are and who God is? I'm really glad you asked those three questions. I have some answers for you. First, the story is about a man, but it's also about a nation. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because the Assyrians had treated Israelites horribly. The story asks the question, can Jonah forgive the Assyrians? Which is really the question, can his nation can Israel forgive the Assyrians? Jonah is angry at the end. Angry that God's been so kind. Of course Jonah's angry. Because when you haven't forgiven someone who has wronged you, and then something good happens to them, when they're blessed or they're shown mercy or experience favor, it is infuriating. Can I get an Amen. I want to encourage you for a minute. I heard this phrase recently, like walk naked through your mind. <laughs> Here's what I mean by that. Be honest for a minute. Any impulse you have, any pharisaical, religious, like I'm a Jesus kid, like impulse that is like, I wouldn't ever. Could you try to retire that hypocritical thought for a second? Try, it's hard. I, I'm not being like sarcastic. This is hard for me. Just retire it. No, 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 I would. I have. Or I know people who have. To see the love of God come on those supporters. People of that political disposition. People who have caused that wrong. Again, I'm not talking about agree to disagree scenarios. People who are committing that atrocity. Those folks who I just assume, because I've seen what they've done to others, are just rotten to the core. This kind of love is infuriating, which leads to a larger theme in the Bible. According to the story that's been unfolding in the Bible up until Jonah, is that Israel had a calling 
to be a light to the world and to show the world God's redeeming love. This is Genesis 12. These people are, are, were blessed and called by God, elected, predestined for a reason, to be a blessing to everybody else. And it's a calling that they haven't lived up to. So there's a question then that sits below the story of Jonah, which is, can you forgive your worst anim- enemy and be a channel through which God's redeeming love can flow to them? Can you? One of, if not the main point of Jonah is that God's great mercy and God's great patience extends to those people. To those people. The book is a revelation of God's infuriating love because it's infuriating when someone doesn't get what they deserve. I think if we are really honest, the grace of God is awful to us. At least sometimes. Because we naturally believe that the proper response to evil is to fear it. We know nothing about that, right? In the age of divided politics. We know nothing about that in the age of Trump. We know nothing about that, right? In the age of the pro-life, pro-choice movement. We know nothing about that. Our natural response when we see evil is to fear it. To desire its destruction. Not to love it and desire its redemption. This does not mean we do not stand up to injustice. It means as followers of Jesus, we do not do it pretty much always as the world does it. I have people in my life who I want to die. I, I, I almost mean that literally. I thought that might get a laugh, but okay. People are like, yeah, me too. Oh, shoot. I mean, no. I have people in my life who have hurt my family to the bone. People who I am so deeply frustrated and am so clear without a shadow of a doubt that what they did was wrong and evil and have seen the carnage that they have laid before them and the way they have hurt my friends. I get this. I'm so angry. They are, to me, those people. And if I long to be, and if I say that I want to be an apprentice of Jesus, an agent of God's healing and love and mercy in the world, I have to submit my way to his way, my will to his will. I have to let go of my bitterness and my anger. And so next week, actually, we're going to talk about that. How do we allow God to transform our hurt versus transmitting it? And we'll talk about the crazy fish part next week. But today, could we just acknowledge how deep the Father's love is for us? Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Right out of the gates, we get a picture of what we see in 2 Peter 3.9. Where Peter writes, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Or we see an image of Timothy when he writes in the New Testament to a church like ours. First of all, I urge you uh, that uh, you give up prayers and petitions and thanksgiving to everyone, to kings and queens and those in authority. Um, And then he says, 
uh, this is a God um, who uh, wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. A God who is patient, wanting everyone to come to know him. A God who desires everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then there's how chapter 1 ends. Verse 17 of Jonah. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. He provided. Just for a minute before we move on. He provided. He provided the storm. He provided the sailors. And he provided the fish. He comes after Jonah again and again, giving chance after chance to help Jonah move from reluctance to acceptance of God's perfect, grace-driven way. Come on, are you tracking with me? Are you with me? It's like Jonah's getting a taste of the grace and mercy that he is meant to be a sign of to Nineveh. He's getting a taste of it. This is what I'm like, Jonah. Even in your disobedience, I'm trying to show you this kind of sign. I'm being gracious and merciful to you. This is what I need you to be for them. And so when I read this, I can't help but think, am I so great that I am somehow more deserving of God's love and mercy than those people? Or or isn't it funny that when I talk about my issues, I don't know about you, but I say things like my brokenness, my shadow side, And then when it's someone else's issues, it's you sinner, you fraud, you liar. Anyone else? No? I feel really alone right now. Can I get an amen? (laughs) I'm like bleeding up here, guys. Anyone else? Yeah, right? Like, oh, yeah, my brokenness, my story. Yeah, I mean, I've got some bent edges. Yeah, they're a liar, sinner. I can't believe that they. It's like my default is to assume that they, I don't know that I'm growing, and they've stopped. It's my default to assume I can change, they can't. It's my default to assume that their story is over, but mine's still going. That I get to decide someone else's destiny, not God. That I get to decide how and when justice will be executed, not God. And Jonah reminds us, of the sobering reality that God is not looking for my vote. He's looking for my faithfulness. He's not looking for my vote, but my faithfulness to his character and my faithfulness to his love and my faithfulness to his grace and my, and my trust in his timeline. Which raises one last question today. Will we allow ourselves to surrender our fickle and broken will to his good and perfect one? Will we trust his way over what often is the instinctual way? There's a reason why in baptism we die to ourselves and we come back up. There's a reason why there's something different that shifts. We move from death to life when we say yes to Jesus as Lord and we find ourselves in Christ. It's what Paul says, I got this old man, this old woman kind of knocking at the door, telling me there's a natural way to do things. And Jesus is like, there's an upside down way to do things. No, 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 there's a way to do, no, 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 there's just the right way, there's the proper way, there's the natural way, there's the thing that makes the most sense in the flesh. And he's like, no, 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 the way I change the world, have always changed the world, is through sacrificial love, and you keep wanting to power up. 
No, no, the way I'm going to actually shift things, and it's going to take a little more time, and it's going to seem broken, it's going to seem not as satisfying, but then when we look back through history, it's the only thing that's actually lasted. It's when a group of people lay down their life. It's when we stop looking at those people and imagine that their story is over and their redemption is done. Nah. It makes total sense, and it is probably the loudest thing happening, especially in the progressive and hyper-conservative parts of our world right now. It is like definitively everywhere on both sides of the aisle, and it is just not the way of Jesus. And so this question of will we trust in his good and perfect will and acknowledging that our view of those people might be bent and broken, might this lay a foundation for us as we explore this fascinating story over the next couple weeks? As we talk about how do I actually forgive? Andrew, this is cute, but you don't know what they did to me. You don't know what those people represent You don't know the sort of systemic injustice that they perpetuated in the world. You don't appreciate that. And the story of Jonah would simply say, I do. And so how do we move to a place of absorbing the the ache of the world? How do we move to places of deep forgiveness and reconciliation? How do we move to the communion table? So... The prayers that we're going to pray as we take communion and as we come to linger and pray together are these. We're going to, we're going to hear, give me faith to trust what you say, that you're good and that your love is great. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And we're going to pray, pray prayers like, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, Lord, I, I need you. And so as we come to the communion table and we take of the bread and we take of the cup, we remember Christ's body broken and his blood poured out for us. We remember acutely in this moment the grace and mercy of our God who said, while you are still enemies, I died for you. And all of the ways that you were jacked up and didn't even realize that I laid down my life for you. This is our God. This is our God. This is good news, right? This is our God. Can you say this is our God? This is our God. This is love. This, this sort of love will transform us into the people who don't see those people. They recognize with deep humility the love that is upon all of us. Jesus said God calls the rain to fall on the righteous and unrighteous. God's love. It's for everybody. God's love is for everybody. So in a moment, if you're a part of the family here or a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you. You can line up in the center aisle. You can like two lanes. One goes this way. One goes this way. Take the bread dip it in the cup. It's a reminder of Christ's body broken and his blood poured out for us. We have some um, of the regular, the small insulated packets. If you're just uncomfortable, I know this is a strange moment in our world with touching things, (laughs) with germs and all of that. So if you'd like to take a cup, 
and bring that back to your seat. You can also do that. Please feel free. And then the last thing I want to invite us to do, and this is like a culture shift. There's something about coming to the altar. Romans 12, it says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Sacrifices happened on the altar. I think there's something about the, the, the front of the room where if there's some specific things, there's some relationships that are broken. The word that came to our team in our rally room before service was like healing, the word of healing. Some people have some relationships that need, desperately need healing. They need to bring, they haven't been brought before the Lord. And so I just want to invite you, as you come forward, you could take communion or wait to take communion and just step back and just kind of uh, allow, like, like put, your, put your arms open, your hands open, or to even sit on the front pew. And so as people are going by, you can just kind of line the front or go to the prayer area just as a, a physical posture of saying, Lord, I'm going to lay this down. We get our bodies involved in this. And then lastly, Paul's really clear about if you've got an issue with a brother or sister, don't come to the communion table. Go and take care of that issue before you come. Some things can't be reconciled in a minute. But if there's bitterness, if there's a phone call that hasn't been made that needs to be made, I want to encourage you to take Paul's word seriously and don't come. Not out of punishment. He's just like, if you're going to be in union with me, if you're going to receive the forgiveness of sins and the sacrificial love of God, it's like Paul is saying, like, you should go take care of that because that will make this situation very inauthentic. There's no guilt, no shame, but Paul's very clear. So if you've got to make a phone call after service or text somebody now, be like, we need to talk. Or again, you just need to come forward, not take communion today, but just to sit with arms open. We're going to take time with these prayers and these songs for the next few minutes before we close. I'm honoring my mother. We got so much time. Church, would you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, as my sisters and brothers wait in line, as they take the bread and dip it in the cup, as they pause and go to the prairie or lift their hands to the sky, Lord, would you move? Would you convict? Would you encourage? God, for all the ways that we can be like Jonah, if anything, the story, Lord, exemplifies is just how epic your love is for each one of us how much your love is for the disobedient prophet, how you kept going after him again and again, Lord Jesus. For those that need to like experience that love in their body, might they do that as we sing. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking communion, if you're coming forward to pray or coming to the altar, would you stand now? Would you come to the center aisle? And as you head back, whenever you decide to head back, to go around the side, back to your seat, and we'll close our time.